to the Legal LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use any and all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. During the month of July 2022, we're going to be hosting a special mini series examining the many legal issues specific to LGBTQ Plus people subsequent to the recent Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or Foundation. This is now a rapidly evolving area of the law, and today's conversation is being recorded on June 30th, 2022. For our first podcast in the series, I will be joined by two powerhouses in the LGBTQ plus legal advocacy movement, James Essex and Omar Gonzalez-Fagan. Omar Gonzalez-Fagan is a senior attorney and healthcare strategist at Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest national legal organization committed to achieving full recognition of the civil rights of LGBTQ people and people living with HIV. He has played a critical role in advancing the rights of LGBTQ people under the U.S. Constitution and federal civil rights laws in virtually every aspect of our lives, including education, employment, healthcare, and housing. James Essex is the director of the ACLU LGBTQ and HIV project. Through litigation, legislation, lobbying, policy advocacy, organizing, and public education, the ACLU seeks to ensure equality and justice for LGBTQ people and people living with HIV. James has served as counsel in a number of Supreme Court decisions that impact the everyday lives of LGBTQ people, including Bostock, Obergefell, Windsor, Grim and Masterpiece Cake Shop. James, Omar, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you, Shane. So before we jump into today's conversation, I want to make sure everyone has kind of an equal framework for understanding exactly what happened. This was a very recent decision and a lengthy one at that. Omar, would you mind taking us through the majority decision? Sure. Just to give a little bit of background, I think it's important for people to know uh, both what was at stake and the some ways the procedural history of where we got to the decision that was released on just last week. Um, this involved a law that prohibited abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. By the 15th week of pregnancy, many people still do not know if they are pregnant. And, um, and so it was challenged in court. And the law had been uh, enjoined, had been stayed until this case was winding its way through. Just a couple of turns back, the Supreme Court had uh, reaffirmed, modified to some extent, but still reaffirmed the central holdings of Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey um, in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead. And so this was yet another case being taken up by the Supreme Court. and. In its briefing and in in the question that was actually presented to the court and that the court granted cert on, review on, it did not ask the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. However, after the petition had been filed and um, Justice Ginsburg passed away and was replaced with uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Mississippi took a different tack and asked the court to actually overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, that's where most of the argument focused on. 
this case was argued, this, the United States uh, Solicitor General Prologar argued uh, alongside advocates uh, for uh, Jackson Whole uh, Woman's Health um, the, who were seeking to defend their ability to provide this healthcare um, and for their patients' rights. And at the end of the day, the Supreme Court decided that it was overturning Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and 28 other cases that had reaffirmed the central fundamental right of a, to terminate a pregnancy. There's obviously another part to this, which is that there was a leaked opinion, uh, which had not happened, has not often happened uh, in, in Supreme Court history. And that leak opinion uh, authored by Justice Alito was substantially the same as the decision that came out just a few days ago. And uh, in it, it not only eliminates the constitutional right that had been enshrined in law for 50 years to terminate a pregnancy, but it adopts a whole new framework, radical new framework that really says that unless a constitutional fundamental right that's not enumerated is uh, recognized as a right at the time of the adoption of either uh, the first set of amendments, the first 12th amendments, or of the 14th amendment, as incorporated to this, which incorporates them to the states. So we're talking in 1791 or 1868. If that right didn't exist then, then it is not protected by the constitution. The majority opinion, which was joined by five justices, excluding those three that were appointed by Democrats, Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan, and the Chief Justice who uh, wrote, I can only join us with a judgment, would have upheld the law, but would not have overturned Roe v. Wade. The majority opinion was five justices, each of them uh, joined this radical new position. They go out of their way, Alito wrote on behalf of these five justices, to say that they were not uh, saying that it called into question other rights, like those in uh, Griswold with regards to right to privacy and the use of contraceptives, uh, those recognizing Lawrence about sex, sexual intimacy, and those recognizing Obergefell with regards to marriage equality. They say time and again, that they are that this decision doesn't concern or affect those rights, but it is hard to square the reasoning of the Dobbs decision with those rights. And it is important to note that they say that stare decisis doesn't apply if they think a case was wrongly decided, and that there are no general societal reliance interests that the court should be weighing when reversing precedents. And so it is difficult to square that and difficult to take them at their word. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrent opinion separately as did Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas actually did call for a case saying that this wasn't the case, but a case that would eradicate substantive due process writ large. No other justice joined him, but he called for that. And that specifically named Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell as cases that should be revisited. And I, I think, you know, we should also speak of the dissent, which uh, first of all was a joint dissent, also incredibly rare, and uh, calls out the majority 
for saying that the only thing that changed here is the makeup of the court. And that it is truly the makeup of the, the changing in the makeup of the court that has led to the eradication of this right. And that there is no consistent legal reasoning that, that, that really justifies what occurred. Thank you for framing the issues. James, would you like to add anything about any of the opinions? No, thank you. Uh, thank you, Omar, for um, a, a, a comprehensive summary of what the court did. So now that we've kind of outlined the issues with the opinions, we saw the disconnect between the judges saying, don't worry, this is limited to abortion, with the exception of Justice Thomas saying, well, while we're at it, let's consider these other issues as well. I think it's important to really think about why we're here, right? Why are we here as LGBTQ plus people talking about an abortion decision? Let's take a look now at what this means for the defense of marriage equality going forward. Uh, this is James, I'll jump in. As Omar laid out, the court in Dobbs uh, lays out um, a new and different test for how you decide whether there's a fundamental right protected by the Constitution if it's a right that's not otherwise expressly named in the Constitution. Uh, so an, an, what they call an unenumerated uh, right. And it's a very restrictive test. And the challenge, the problem is if you apply that test to a series of other rights, and we're starting with the the, the, the uh, freedom to marry, and it's definitely true here. If you if you take that approach to the to the question of is there a fundamental right, they they may well say yes, there's a fundamental right to marry, but it, but they are also going to say, look, the proper question here is there was there in 1791 or 1868 a clearly um, protected right to marry that applies to gay people, that applies to same-sex couples. And look, the answer to that question is no. Our position um, has been, that's not the right question. And the court has taken different positions on, on the what's the right, the, the scope of the, um, of the fundamental right, the, how, the scope with which, you, the sort of the level of specificity with which you define the right at different times in the past. And even just on the marriage issue, you can see the court um, take different positions over time. So in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court gets um, a, a petition, actually an, an appeal, an appeal as a right from the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court in a case called Baker versus Nelson that's about, um, uh, involves a same-sex couple, two guys represented, I'm proud to say, um, by the ACLU of Minnesota seeking the right to marry. And they had lost all the way through the uh, Minnesota state courts, but they had brought um, a uh, federal claims. And the court could do, could, didn't have to take the case. It's an appeal as of right, but they, they had invented a way to say they, they're just dismissing cases for, quote, for want of a substantial federal question. Um, and it was, a, they, so cases where they're like, oh, this is a loser. We're not going to bother. We're not going to waste our time on this. Uh, that's what they would do. And it also served as uh, an opinion on the merits by the court on the question posed in the petition or in, in the appeal. And so at that point in 72, they, it's such a ridiculous question, such a ridiculous assertion that the fundamental right to marry, which was established um, by the court in 67 in the Loving versus Virginia case, it's such a, a ridiculous assertion that it would cover same-sex couples that they don't even take it up. In 2015, in Obergefell, the Supreme Court oh overrules Baker versus Nelson and says, we got the scope of the fundamental right wrong then. 
because the right that is asserted here is the right to marry. And it doesn't matter who's involved, it's a right to marry. And so the court has, in the, in the marriage context, has at least to some degree grappled with this question, like what's the level of specificity that, at which we should be defining the fundamental right? The worry is that if the court applies the uh, doctrinal analysis from Dobbs to the marriage question, that the fundamental rights uh, portion of Obergefell would be overturned. And I, I think that you know, if they do apply that in the Dobbs analysis, it, will, it would be overturned because there was not a clearly identified fundamental right of same-sex couples to get married in 1868 or 1791. It's just like the history may be more complicated than we think it is, but I don't think there's any history that's going to say that there is such a, a clearly established right. That said, I think it's important in the marriage context to remember that Obergefell was not only a fundamental right to marry decision. That was the main claim in the case. It's certainly the main thing that the court talks about for most of the pages of that decision. But the court also says very clearly, this is also based on equality. It's entirely possible, that's not a prediction, but it's possible that the court could adhere to the doctrinal analysis in Dobbs, apply that to the marriage question, say the fundamental right to marry portion of Obergefell is overruled, but that Obergefell itself is affirmed because of the equality uh, portion of that, that should be unaffected. Now, that does not take into account the very real possibility that this Supreme Court could decide to mess up equality um, jurisprudence too, but they haven't done it yet, and they may not. But but that seems to me to be you know both the scary prospect going forward in the marriage context coming out of Dobbs, but also the very real caveat that hey we have other ways to hold on to that victory, um, uh, basically uh, namely equal protection. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would just add that there's another layer, right? Like there's a difference between them getting to the step of whether they're going to evaluate the case and then. There's a separate question of whether they will overturn the case anyway. There's still the stereotypes analysis factors that they will go through. They did so in Dobbs, and I think that analysis is flawed in how they did it. But there are certain factors that the court takes into account besides their disagreement with the decision in overturning. And among the many, it's reliance interests by the general public and reliance interest by others on the decision. Has it been unworkable? Has it been difficult? Um, has it, was it rightly decided? Was it wrongly decided? So there's a whole host of factors that the course goes through, goes through in its um, stereotypes analysis. I, I think uh, some other podcasts have introduced the phrase stereotypes is for suckers. And I think that applies in many ways here. Um, even now they undermined what constitutes a reliance interest in Dobbs. They said that general reliance, the fact that some people have depended on this right, is not enough. I, I think it's an open question, A, whether this court would revisit Obergefell, B, whether it would, whether it would even up, uphold or not uphold certain parts of Obergefell based on going through the stereotypes factors. I think it's beyond question that this court, this court, if they were getting the case anew, would not decide Obergefell in our favor, at least on a fundamental right to marry. But that's not the question moving forward. The question is whether they're going to revisit it, if they, if they are going to revisit it, if they're going to go through the services and, and, and undermine it. And I think 
there are there is dangerousness even on the equality side. They haven't touched the equality side yet, uh, but I am concerned about their approach to constitutional analysis and relying on the views of folks that were in power and had a voice in 1791 and in 1868. They say, of course, none of them understood liberty to mean the fundamental right to marry or liberty to mean the right to terminate a pregnancy. But I don't think that the people who ratified the constitution in 1791 understood equal protection of the laws to cover race or to cover sex. And the people that uh, enacted the 14th Amendment in 1868 definitely understood that it covered race, but I don't know that they understood what that meant, right? That's how we got Plessy versus Ferguson. And, and, and that's how we got segregation for, for decades in our lived reality and experience. And that's why it took a 95 Amendment to extend the right to vote to women. So would VMI survive this, this, this analysis that was applied in, in Dobbs from an equal protection perspective? I'm not sure that it would, right? From a textual perspective, it should. And I think this is also a, a, some of what's been clear from this decision is that this is not about a, a identifying and evaluating and analyzing the text of our constitution. This is about amateur historical work and trying to divine the views and positions of people that were in power in 1791 and in 1868. And just so people are clear, that means cisgender, straight, white men. It wasn't women, it wasn't racial minorities, it wasn't LGBTQ people. Property owners. So I'm hearing from you, one of the dangers of looking at the history and tradition is Whose history are we really focused on here when we had so many voices that were ex intentionally excluded from participating? Certainly, it, it, it's really about, I view what has happened about the maintenance of power. I believe that the originalism as a legal and judicial doctrine is flawed because it's, it's focusing on history as written by the people who get to write the history. And it ignores the basic premise of a constitutional right and a Bill of Rights, which is that it applies in the future for folks that may not be alive then and for circumstances that may not have occurred yet. It is a broadly stated rights so that they can be applied in more specific circumstances in the future. At the end of the day, this is a moment in time. It is an incredibly dangerous moment in time. I think there, there are already over half a dozen states that have completely banned abortion immediately as a result of this decision. Um, there, certain, there will be others. It will be, you know, th there are trigger laws that are coming into effect in various states. Um, and there are laws being introduced now seeking to criminalize people traveling out of state to obtain an abortion. But at the end of the day, this is also a moment in time, right? The, it, people should not think that this is the end of the road. The anti-abortion movement, the anti-choice movement has been working at this for 40 plus years and they got the result. I believe those of, those of us who believe in a more expansive view of the constitution can do the same and should do the same and work hard to make sure that if there's a, a future for us to look forward to, it's gonna take decades, right? Nobody should be saying that, that, that reversing this and correcting this will be overnight from a constitutional perspective 
it can be and can be it can be corrected. And there are things that can be done even in the meantime, both politically and legally, by going to state courts, relying on state constitutions, and by having our elected officials step up. And that also means us as citizens participating in the democratic process even more actively. So it sounds like we're probably okay with putting aside marriage for now. Marriage continues to be safe for now. And I want to reiterate that no one's marriage was overturned as a result of this opinion. I've seen a lot of nervous chatter online. Let's take a moment to think about what this means for relationships for folks who maybe necessarily aren't married. So what does this mean in terms of access to contraception? So this is James. Um, you know, the, the same risk that we identified in the marriage context exists in the contraception context. Um, Griswold versus Connecticut was a case um, from the 60s uh, where the Supreme Court um, recognizes or holds that um, the right to privacy, the right to autonomy includes a right to make a decision to use contraception. And it's in the context of, in, within the context of a marriage, it's later extended to um, unmarried folks as well. And that the Griswold decision is based on this uh, same privacy autonomy right um, that is uh, that would, would likely be judged according to this Dobbs uh, fundamental rights analysis and is similarly at risk. If that gets uh, overturned, what that means is just like in the abortion context, it doesn't mean that um, you know uh, contraception contraceptives are unlawful all of a sudden. It simply means states are allowed to um, regulate them and to um, not just regulate them, to, but to ban them. And I think that uh, certainly there's a part of the uh, very conservative um, agenda in this country to um, to stop that, to stop the access to, to uh, contraceptives. Um, and certainly we see that in all of the, the, the fights over the Affordable Care Act and whether the Affordable Care Act was uh, going to be interpreted to require faith institutions to um, pay for contraceptive coverage. Um, I think many folks in the reproductive freedom movement were just shocked that 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 contraception all of a sudden was a was an issue that we were fighting over. Um, and it may be an issue that we fight over even more going forward. I'm worried about where that goes. It's not clear to me what the political dynamics are on the contraception issue on the right. Um, I think the, the political dynamics in the marriage context are there's already some chatter um, in some places where people um, are going to push that. I'm not I'm not predicting that it ha happens um, all over the place. I don't know yet if it's if it's just chatter uh, or if it's actually going to turn into uh, legislative proposals. Uh, and similarly, I'm not sure what's going to show up um, uh, in terms of uh, contraceptive restrictions. Omar, do you have a sense of that? The honest answer is no. I, I don't. I, I think the last six years have put any type of reading into the political psychos to the test. And uh, I would love to say that we are past a world in which people would introduce laws or restrictions into the ability of uh, individuals to obtain contraception. But We've heard of folks, right? State representatives, randoms here and there, but like we've heard of folks who are introducing those bills right now as a result of. I would like to believe that a majority, look, clearly a, the vast majority, substantially vast majority of all of all people in, in our country believe in this, right? And uh, don't think that it should be restricted in any way. Um, but will there be a rogue legislature that passes a law? 
I would say it's within the realm of possibility now. Mm. Um, and I think that is in part due because we have more and more extremists being elected to state legislatures and Congress because of structural problems in how we organize our democracy. And you have base elections in particular parties rather than determining who represents parts of the country rather than having a general election determine that. And so um, I would like to certainly not in the, in the near term, certainly not anytime soon, but I wouldn't I would hesitate to to give an absolute no, right? Like I would have to say to, to hesitate to say that no, there's no risk. I think is it plausible? Definitely not. Is it possible? I would say there's a slight possibility that you could see some 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 folks try to attack this very uh, well established right. Yeah, I agree with all that, Omar. And I, I, this is James. I'd say um, that you know I think that the Dom's decision. Um, and especially the concurrence by Justice Thomas is an invitation to people to create mischief. And uh, because that's how um, uh, cases, the legal issues will be teed up um, for them to work their way up the federal court system and potentially to the US Supreme Court. That's clearly what he wants. Um, he was he said so in so many words. Um, and so what, what's just not clear yet is, okay, how many folks are going to take up that invitation? What is the political appetite in the states on X, Y, or Z issue, whether it's marriage or it's contraception or it's sodomy laws or it's some other um, issue in the, uh, along the fundamental rights? It may be that the politics of um, the situation are, you know, still forming and folks are, you know, going to test the waters and see what works with their base. Uh, but so I'm worried about, um, I'm worried about, you know, restrictions on marriage and contraception and um, on, on sexual intimacy, both at the state level, which is obviously state legislatures, some of it might be able to be done by um, governors. Um, and I'm also worried about it at the municipal level because cities can do some things here. They can say, we're gonna provide benefits to the, uh, you know, street, uh, people's our straight employees' spouses and not to the, our gay employees' spouses, for example, to just create a disparity. And then all of a sudden, that's something that, you know, we're going to have to figure out if we're going to do something about. Um, create misdemeanors um, in many, many states. Um, so they can, they can criminalize sexual intimacy if they want. Um, and, you know, uh, so I'm worried that restrictions on all of these issues could pop up both at the state level and the city level. And that is scary because the, you know, you need super right-wing politics to make a bunch of these things uh, plausible, but there are a bunch of places, um, especially, especially at the municipal level, where that could actually happen. So let's talk about some of the folks that already seem interested in taking up on this invitation to mischief. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a frequent subject of the podcast, as you both probably know, is already discussing the relationship between Dobbs and sodomy laws. James, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, so the, the, it's the same pattern in, in the sodomy law context. Um, th that is that um, the the decision that got rid of the remaining sodomy laws um, in the country is land illegals wonderful victory in uh, Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. And it's a fundamental right to privacy decision um, that says that, you know, government is, this is not an issue that the government has the power to 
criminalized and to regulate in that way, because these are decisions we get to make about our own lives and our own bodies. And it's the same challenge that um, if uh, coming out of Dobbs, that the Dobbs analysis applied to Lawrence would, I believe, get the court to the, you know, a, a different answer um, about what uh, what's protected here. Here we have also um, the same sort of an, even a clearer example of how the, the court, the Supreme Court itself has changed its focus over time about what the right level of specificity of how you describe the fundamental right is, because in 1986 in Bowers versus Hardwick, the Supreme Court was uh, considering the constitutionality of Georgia's sodomy law in the context of uh, a same-sex relationship, and the court upheld the constitutionality of that statute, said it's perfectly fine, and said it was, you know, kind of ridiculous to think that the, that gay people having sex could possibly be protected under the Constitution. And then 17 years later in in, uh, Lawrence, the court says, you know what, we got the scope of the fundamental right wrong in Bowers um, because we we misapprehended what was the the claim in that case. Um, This is, you know, the, 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 the right isn't defined by the people who want to exercise it. It's it's defined by the, the autonomy that we all have over, as I said earlier, our lives and our bodies. Dobbs represents, um, in essence, the court going back to the Bowers versus Hardwick analysis. Um, and it's not in a sonomy law context yet, but that's what it looks like. It looks like Bowers. So I'm worried about where that goes. And I'm worried about the mischief making that can happen on the ground to tee this up. Um, I think that I was kind of surprised by Paxton's comments. I shouldn't have been probably, but because I thought that um, sexual in- laws regulating sexual intimacy would not be something that most folks, even on the right, would want uh, to get involved in. Um, after all, uh, the folks on the right say that they want to get government out of people's lives, unless, of course, it's people that they don't like. Do you think this has any relationship to the uptick in rhetoric that we're hearing describing pretty much all LGBTQ plus people or even our allies who take their children to drag shows as quote unquote groomers? I do. I think it's all of a piece in the sense that I think that we are um, seeing a resurgence of this save our children, uh, LGBTQ folks are groomers uh, narrative um, that is not new in the American culture. But it has, I've never seen it um, as uh, virulent um, and powerful and successful as it is in the current moment. Um, This seems to be the new frame that's working for them. And I'm, I'm, you know, devastated and somewhat surprised that it's working that hard because, you know, in, in the Towards the very end of the the fight around the, the cultural fight in the country around marriage, I thought we had actually made a decent amount of progress about the what we would now call the groomer issue, um, the idea that gay people are um, going trying are recruiting kids and that uh, having gay people be around kids is dangerous for the kids, because in the early uh, marriage litigation we lost uh, marriage cases in state courts again and again, be in part because the argument on the other side was, well, you know what, um, gay people just, you know, shouldn't be around kids, aren't good for kids, kids are going to do better if they're not around gay people, so marriage should be limited to um, uh, a man and a woman. Put aside that, the, you know, the argument was dumb because, like, 
keeping stopping gay people from marrying doesn't actually put more kids with straight people married or not it's just there's just no logical connection but it didn't make any difference that there was no logical connection they won their cases on that argument again and again but then in like 2013 2014 all of a sudden we start winning marriage cases based on the argument that says well you know what it's better for the kids if the parents are married and there are kids who have gay people who are parents and so isn't it should be you know they should be able to get married because it'll be better for the kids and i was like oh my god how did we go from losing cases based on you know kids and gay people to winning cases based on kids and gay people um and i and i thought that that meant that we we had reached some kind of fundamental turning point in how the country understood uh lgb people and boy was that naive and wrong um because I mean, even if we did for a little while that is not where we are today. I would disagree a little bit in noting that I don't think that we have retreated to a place where a majority of people in our country think that way. I, I think it's very, it, it, I think the problems are structural about who has a voice, right? And so 60, over 60% 60 of Americans support the right to terminate a pregnancy. More than two thirds of Americans, closer to 80, support the right of same-sex couples to marry, right? The right to contraception is supported by over 90% of people, right? Um, but the people who are elected uh, are, are because of structural problems and that are given, a, are, are, are voicing these issues from an elected position and the people who are screaming the loudest is because they're responding to like their core base. Mm -hmm. And that core base is feels empowered. That core base feels like they don't need to mask themselves anymore. But it's not it's not that we have retreated in the sense that the numbers have gone one way or another. I think that progress is still there. It's just that we have retreated in the sense that those who would have thought twice about voicing this misguided and hurtful and discriminatory views no longer feel the need to censor themselves. And, and that I think is evident in many ways, not just with regards to LGBTQ people, but the rights of women, the rights of racial minorities, and the conversation that's been going around this country for now the seven plus years about how we talk about our fellow neighbors and citizens. And people respond to their example, the example of their leaders. And when you have leadership that feels okay saying these things, then the ones that feel that want to say that will say that. And then we have that big middle who are just not as invested. They may not believe in these things, but are not as invested in these issues. And we need to convince them that they really should care about these issues because the erosion of the right to privacy affects not just LGBTQ people, affects not just women and people who can get pregnant with regards to their right to terminate an abortion, it affects everybody, right? And they need, we need to convince people that you rely on this right <laughs> as well. And, and, and you should be equally as concerned and not because one, one erosion is one erosion that gives way to another. And here we have, we just have a runaway train when it comes to 
uh, espousing a particular point of view and making it, cementing it in the constitution and cementing it in our government. And all of this, this term, let's be honest, was catastrophic. We have seen the right to terminate abortion be eliminated, the right to habeas relief be limited, the Miranda rights, <laughs> which I didn't think were at the table, be curtailed. We have seen uh, the uh, in, uh, to just today the ability of state uh, of of administrative agencies to actually respond to societal problems be limited. We have seen uh, uh, Native American rights be curtailed and eradicating decades and decades of precedence as well in the process. This has been a catastrophic term that has marked a whole shift. They have basically eradicated all of the seminal cases from the 1970s. And, and it really is a project to redo society. We have seen the Establishment Clause be repealed by fiat, by judicial fiat, in order under the guise of the Free Exercise Clause. And, and, and let's be real, we have also seen this very court uh, demonstrate that they believe in freedom of religion uh, for only some religions. And, and so there is a question of like, what, what is it that is driving all of this change? And is it a question of religious supremacy? Is it a question of uh, protecting one view as opposed to being a neutral arbiter of the free speech clause, of the freedom of religion clause, of, of the free exercise and, and establishment clause, and of what liberty means, what equality means, and what privacy means. I appreciate you taking the time to center where Dobbs fits into relationship with the term as a whole, right? Because when you paint it like that, it sounds like Dobbs is far from an outlier. Train wreck of a term. Omar, you kind of touched on this a little bit in your comments that there's kind of been a hesitation for the reproductive justice movement and the LGBTQ plus movement to work together in tandem, that people don't always see the relationship between these two civil rights movements. And could you speak a little bit more about how these two movements can be better allies to each other and the intersectional nature? I don't know that there's been necessarily a hesitation. I think we have responded in different ways to changes as movements. Um, certainly we are allied movement. And the reality is that there's no reproductive rights without LGBTQ rights, and there's no LGBTQ rights without reproductive rights, because the judicial doctrines and the foundation of, of our rights are the same, one and the same in many ways, which is why the decision in Dobbs is so concerning, right, and problematic for LGBTQ community and advocates. I think our movements can learn from each other, both in how we have achieved victories and how we respond to defeats. And this is a learning moment for both movements. And there are things that I think all of us, and not just the reproductive rights movement or the LGBTQ rights movement, but really the civil rights movement more generally, to sit down and give thought right now to how we respond to what is happening in the court, in our government, and not to steal a, a phrase from, from James or, or, or some of our colleagues, but the courts will not be the only, will not save us. They are not the only thing that can save us, right? Um, I'm a firm believer of the power of the court. I really am. And I'm a firm believer in the power of doing impact litigation and being able to change lives for the better using these tools, but they are not the only tools. And certainly they are, they are not the 
sole solution or sole element for any solution. They're just a part of an arsenal of things that we can do. And we need to give thought about how do we respond. Um, there are many things that can be done. There are democratic reforms that we can push and, and that we should probably be pushing more aggressively. And frankly, I think civil rights groups, LGBTQ rights groups, reproductive rights groups, we've been very cautious in how we speak about the courts. We've been very cautious in how we speak about um, government. Taking very seriously, I think rightly, our role as litigators, as officers of the court, right, as being judicious advocates. And I don't think it was a mistake necessarily to do that, right? We were always much more cautious and serious about how we spoke about the courts and our cases and even our losses. But moving forward, I think we're leaving a lot on the table if we don't respond to what's happening. What's happening today is different. It feels different. Uh, the impact is much larger. And so if we are concerned about how the courts are deciding these issues and why, then we should be responding accordingly, right? Always respectful of the courts and, and, and always respectful of those that we're in front of. But I think if there are structural issues, we should be making our voices heard on those issues. And we should not be as cautious or silent about it because we, we want to be seen as respectable or we wanna be seen as small C conservative, right? I, I think at the end of the day, um, we have each of us have missions and if we wanna accomplish them, we really need to get thought about how we're gonna to respond to this moment in time. So Omar, do you have thoughts about structural problems that we're facing? Well, certainly uh, there are many things. Uh, I think calling for the elimination of the filibuster is one of them calling for the expansion and structural reforms to the court is another. Ensuring that, that there's an enforceable ethics code for the Supreme Court is another. Passing democratic reforms that would prevent structural problems like gerrymandering. And, and FYI, just the news wasn't, this term, it wasn't the only catastrophe. What cases got taken up for next term is also catastrophic. And that includes the ability of state courts to respond to political gerrymandering being taken up by the Supreme Court as an issue that it will, it will decide next term. And so, right, but Congress has the power to respond to that. For the People Act is one of those responses. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, Advancement Act is another response to that. Uh, giving voting rights to our fellow citizens in DC is part of that. And so all of these are things that can be done. Um, I know that Many of us individually support this. And I know for a fact that many of uh, many groups are evaluating right now whether we will do this as groups. And it is my firm view that, 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 that groups should be speaking up on these issues. And hopefully there will be good news to share in the near future. Um, and by near future, I mean days uh, 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 to see how many of the groups that have really been concerned about this term uh, will respond and where they will fall when it comes to these issues. And Omar, I, I totally agree that, you know, the, the way forward here is political. We as a community need to make common calls with um, other progressive communities um, to work for reform of the political system in many of the ways that you talked about. Uh, but the, way to, the only way that's gonna happen is if we collectively uh, mobilize ourselves, our friends, our allies to get involved in politics, in this, in the elections in the fall, in a way and to a degree we have never done before. 
Um, it takes each of us just deciding and committing that, you know what, I'm going to get involved in a campaign. I am going to uh, door knock. I am going to uh, respond to those emails, those annoying emails that I get, you know, some of them from candidates, but also from organizations that are pushing issues and saying, call my elected representative in Congress or in the state legislature or in the city council. Um, I'm actually going to say, you know, actually, I care about this and I'm going to engage. Um, and because it takes all of us doing that kind of thing to start to make a difference, especially when we are facing structural headwinds like the gerrymandering stuff that you have uh, laid out. Omar, um, that makes it harder for us to uh, be heard than it should be. And so, but the, there, that, as far as I can see, is the only way forward and the only way we could possibly start to um, create some of the more structural reforms that you've mentioned, because otherwise, um, like, you know, our opponents are not going to let any of that stuff happen. I, I agree. I agree 100 percent. I think long term that that is the only solution. And I think short term, we need to give thought to additional strategies, right? Call the question on some issues. Um, I'm excited to see what happens with the lawsuit challenging Florida's new abortion restrictive law brought by a Jewish congregation and see how this court that so fervently believes in freedom of religion will respond to this, right? Look, am I saying that's going to be successful? I don't know. I have no idea. But but I'm 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 actually interested to see if some of the cases, you know, if they hold true to their word, are these cases being decided based on principle or outcome? And that that is a test that can happen. There are arguments that we can still make. Um, look, I don't think that the right to privacy and I don't think that the right to bodily autonomy are not firmly rooted in our history or tradition. They firmly are. The, the Kansas Supreme Court in 2019 issued a decision that's actually a great rejoinder and, and response to the Alito re, uh, decision, but firmly rooted on an evaluation of natural law and Lockean philosophy about how bodily autonomy fits into that, self-determination fits into that, and the right to terminate a pregnancy is part of that. And so we can come up with arguments and it's not the first, it wouldn't be the first time that we take up small C conservative arguments to win cases. Bostock is a small C conservative argument win. And, mm -hmm. and, and we can do that again. Yeah. I think it's important for, for us to also name um, issues that at least shouldn't be affected directly by the Dobbs uh, decision. And that is anything that's based, any of the, the advocacy and, and litigation that, um, our movement is, is involved in that is based on equality and based on equal protection uh, shouldn't by rights be uh, directly affected by the Dobbs decision because that's a fundamental right due process decision, not an equality decision. And at this point, certainly the, the vast majority of the ACLU's work in this uh, on LGBTQ rights, and I believe the vast majority of the legal work by the movement as a whole is based on equality. Um, or statutory uh, non-discrimination rules, which is also an equality concept and not affected by uh, by the Dobbs fundamental rights analysis. And so there's a lot of our work, especially in the trans rights and trans justice space that shouldn't be affected. And I just, so I, I you know, as much as our, our message, our overall message here is there's a lot to be worried about. I wanna make sure people understand there's some things that we shouldn't be worried about yet. Again, the disclaimer has to be added that who knows what this court's going to do, um, because uh, and, and many of these issues, especially trans justice issues, 
um, for better or worse, may end up before the Supreme Court, and we'll see what happens there. But Dobbs is not uh, does not give us tea leaves in particular about how those things would come out. I appreciate those little glimmers of hope. And I recognize that this is a tough time of year to be posing these questions in terms of what's going to happen next or who's going to accept these invitations to make mischief, so to speak, given that we're kind of at the end of most states' legislative sessions. We're really going to have to see what comes up in the hopper in the fall unless and until something happens. I wanted to check in with the two of you to see what you think about how the overall public's loss of confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court impacts the legal profession as a whole. How does this trickle down to everyday lawyers who don't always enjoy the best professional reputation? Well, I will battle the premise that lawyers don't uh, always enjoy the best professional reputation. It was a lot of lawyers, particularly many ACLU lawyers um, and volunteers that responded with regards to the Muslim ban and you saw them flock to airports and help people. Social progress, civil rights progress, LGBTQ rights progress is the work of many. It involves lawyers doing impact litigation work. It involves lawyers doing legal services work. It involves advocates on the ground. It involves uh, people in, uh, talking to their legislatures. It involves agitators. It involves activists. It involves rioters. Because Stonewall itself was a riot. I don't think that the reputation of lawyers is affected by the Dobbs decision and how the justices behave. I think the legitimacy and credibility of the court is affected. And I want to differentiate those two, right? I, I think, look, you have a majority uh, where just three of the justices that joined that majority were confirmed in the last five years, and they all firmly stated that they believed that Roe v. Wade was settled precedent. And, and obviously, they felt quite fit to, to overturn uh, this incredibly important decision. And, you know, some of the last couple of confirmations have really tested uh, the credibility of the court itself as well, right? Um, Knox's confirmation was incredibly controversial um, and his confirmation as well. And that was just a process that I think none of us want to relive through, but certainly it affects some of the credibility of, of the court. And, and, and so how the court responds to their loss of legitimacy in the public's eyes, I, I don't know what they will do, uh, but they should care about it because at the end of the day, the only power that the court has is to, for people to abide by what they say. They don't have any other powers. They don't have police powers. They don't have militaries or police departments that will enforce what they say. It's how people respond to what they say. And, and, and people should believe that we have a court that we will abide by that contract, right? Like that constitutional contract, that social contract that we have where what they say is the ultimate word on the law. But, but if only 25% of Americans believe in the Supreme Court as it is right now, in, according to public polling, we have a problem. That is a problem that I, 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 I don't know what the answer is to it. I think some of the structural reforms that we talked about earlier, uh, both with regards to the court and democratic reforms are necessary to, to restore that legitimacy. But losing faith with the public itself leads to, to other problems, leading, even leading to a constitutional crisis, right? And, and I, we're not there yet. Uh, but it is a real problem that they should be concerned about. We all should be concerned about. This is James. <laughs> I'll just add that um, I think that the problem that we're facing with the loss of credibility of, um, uh, of, that the court has with the public is just 
an extension of the polarization of the country um, uh, politically as a whole. Because, um, you know, folks on the left experience um, Dobbs as uh, an abandonment of principle and the other side is, you know, their view is like, oh, this is like their return, it's a return to principle. And if a future court um, goes back to Roe, the other side will say this is abandonment of principle and the left will say, no, it's return to principle because we no longer have faith that the court is actually going to most of the time get it right and and actually follow dispassionately rules um, that are you know written somewhere or in the constitution and i think there used to be a a greater level of confidence that that's what was going on with the court um, and that is so gone um and you know dobbs certainly seals that um on the left and um you know, the challenge is okay once you lose that how do you get it back um, how do we get back a, a political system that is not as polarized as it is? And how do we get back um, a, a legal system where there's a high degree of confidence that um, justice is actually being done as opposed to politics is just being done? And we are definitely in the politics is just being done uh, phase right now. And I don't know, I don't see the path back to justice. I think we need to work to, to find it but I honestly do not know what the answer is to that, nor do I know what the options are, but I hope we can get there again. But, but it, is a, it is, I think, a dangerous moment in our nation's history when we've gotten to a point where the legitimacy of the court is not necessarily wrongly being questioned. Well, again, thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise on such short notice. Thank you as always to our listeners. Please like, share, and continue to find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Join us next week for our second Dobbs Response podcast, where we'll be joined by attorney Brian Esser to talk about the decision's impact on LGBTQ plus family formation through adoption, surrogacy, and other forms of assisted reproductive technology.